Hey, listeners, uh, welcome. Would you like to have less frustrating conversations? If so, this is the episode for you. My guest today, Jessica Pettit, has been stirring up difficult conversations for over a decade, performing as a stand-up comic and speaking on stage as a diversity educator and moving teams from abstract to action. She's a member of the National Speakers Association and also a certified speaking professional. Jessica, welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio. Well, thank you very much for having me. So you were referred to me by Phil Jones, who started off our year with, by teaching us about how to talk to people to get what we want. Mm. And today, we're going to talk about being aware of our own communication skills and what we bring to our meetings and conversations, both good and bad, and how that, how that affects our relationships in and out of work. Your primary message is that each of us needs to take responsibility for ourselves and how we show up in a conversation. So why is that? Well, let's take Phil Jones as an example. So um, I consider him a friend and I've been on his words with friends. Um, I went to his event in New York. I've read his books, things like that. He and I are friends. We get along with each other and no one would ever confuse the two of us. Right. Like, I mean, we're both devastatingly good looking. Um, he has incredibly that was supposed to be a joke. You didn't laugh at that part. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so he's had a breadth of sales and business experience that he is now bringing to his speaking and consulting work, writing books about it, blogs, all of those kind of things. I was a ceramics major. Um my father is a serial entrepreneur. I tried to be a college administrator and kept getting fired and stumbled into being a solopreneur because I, I had to pay their rent, right? So even just those two very different backgrounds, we can both have very good things to say. But I know that some people are not going to take business advice from me as seriously as they would from Phil because Phil has this business acumen that I don't. And, and a British accent. Which, a British accent, but we both have piercing blue eyes. So I'm just saying, <laughs> just saying. Like anyway, but my business advice might not be taken as heavily as his, right? right. And because of the British accent, and I'm being originally from Texas, he could read the phone book and people would say, yes, I would like more of that. And I don't have that. However, because I have tattoos and funky color hair, and I used to be a stand-up comic, like I think people expect me to be funny. And I am a generally funny person, sure. But I talk about really serious topics, Right. And so then the weight of me being able to talk about contentious topics that most people don't want to talk about, I can do because they perceived me to be charming and funny to begin with. Phil is also very funny, but it's kind of a surprise for him, just like it's a surprise that I would have some kind of business advice. When when you take sales and marketing in general, a lot of the stuff that we're told and that I'm learning in books that I read are about how to deal with the customer and the client. But I think you have to know who's on your end of the phone as well. All right. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. So um, you have this thing where you separate 
different people's, shall we say, conversational styles or work styles into three archetypes. Tell mm-hmm. me about those. Sure. So it's it's more individually how we are more likely to respond in a situation and the more contentious or frustrating the situation is, the more likely we are to respond in a habitual way. Um, if you flip this really quick, if you think about people in your life, you know how they're going to respond to something. So you adjust how you speak to them because you pretty much know how they're going to respond. So what my work is, is the person who's responding out of habit. Why are they responding that way? And do they want to be responding that way? If they do, great, keep it. If you don't, at least now you're conscious of how you actually respond and other people interact with you. So the three archetypes are around three different variables. One is head, one is heart, and one is action. Spoiler alert, all three variables are in all of us. We just don't necessarily use all of them consciously, but they're all there. And heady folks tend to be much more detail-oriented, ask a lot of questions, uh, get kind of frozen in a conversation until a detail is named or a question is answered, then they can continue on. Uh, Hardy does not mean emotions, but it means they need to know the idea that something is connected to. So X can happen and all of a sudden they're having a much bigger conversation connected to something much larger. Then action is they really don't want to talk about it. Um, They don't really like meetings, right? Like meetings that plan meetings are probably infuriating to an action-oriented person. They like to do stuff. Um, So when, when I'm working with like, let's say volunteer managers, there are volunteers who are really interested in doing stuff that we burn out before they even have an opportunity to do something because we made them sit through like video conference calls about what the event is going to be like. Those are the type of people you just need to call and say, put these chairs over here, not discussing the different variables of a chair, right? Yep. yep. So if you can figure out which one you are, so like a, um, another example that I like to use across all three is graffiti. So when you see graffiti the first time, a heady person thinks of property damage, policies. I'm a really heady person, so I spell check it, right? (laughs) A hardy person may remember a dilapidated building, now see a beautiful mural, and start talking about like outdoor picnics. And the next thing you know, they're Googling, you know, inflatable outdoor movie theaters. So if those two people are talking... They can get really frustrated with each other, but they're actually not miscommunicating. They're actually responding to the same stimuli, just in different ways. The action person can't join in to movie theater screens or spell check. They want to know how the graffiti happened. Like one person, more than one person, drones, ladders. Like was there a plan? Was it immediately inspired? How did the graffiti happen? All three are responding to the same thing in different ways. That understanding is this side of the sales or marketing or business call, not the client side. Yeah. I don't consider myself to be the action person necessarily, uh, but I will say every time I drive under an overpass and there's graffiti on it and I go, how did they get there? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's impressive because it also has to be upside down and like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> 
Anyway, um, so when we're frustrated by a conversation, and, and you sort of talked about this already, or an interaction with another team member, what is it that we're responding to? It's, um, we're, we're not we're misaligned in some way. I mean, yeah, like I mean, thinking about one thing. It's it's fun with grammar, right? So I always call the frustrating person Todd. We can talk to my therapist about why I call them Todd. But I let's say I'm really frustrated by Todd, which is a general yes. Most of us will, will are for me specifically, I will get brought in to do consulting work or training or something with the intention of fixing Todd. But the reality is, is we can't control people outside of ourselves. So why not actually garner some kind of success by working with ourselves? Todd is frustrating to me. Chances are I am frustrating to someone else. So what do I do that is frustrating someone else on the team? And then do I want to do something about that? Is it congruent with who I am as a person now that I'm conscious of whatever it is that I do that's frustrating? Most conversation books, like uh, Difficult, Fierce, Crucial, and Courageous Conversations, those are four different books, and they do a really good job of how to adjust how you engage in a conversation to match Todd. So you're frustrated by Todd, so what do I need to do to say things differently? Or if we want to go back to Phil Jones, what exactly do I need to say to be able to communicate with person B? But what I noticed was is that none of those books were talking about who is person A. So that's where I come in, is that I'm responsible for who and how I am when I show up. And I have to do that work and take responsibility for how I'm frustrating, annoying with someone else. Not align just how I talk with the person, but align why I talk the way or why I respond the way I do. Generally, my life has taught me that that way is the safest, most successful way of being so that I can be the most prepared. But that doesn't make it right. And more likely, the more habitual it is, the less conscious I am that I'm even doing it in the first place. Yeah. So first of all, there's just a lesson there that goes beyond work, right? And thinking about how we interact with other people. And and we always want to say, oh, that, you know, that person's an idiot. They don't get it. You know, but, they are. And they could be. They could be a total idiot and they could right. not get it. Where are you an idiot and what do you not get? Which one exactly. of those can you do something about? Because we, we're all an idiot to somebody at some point. Right. I mean, I don't have any um, kids, but I don't know a single parent who thinks that their kids think they're smart. Yeah. All right. We don't have time for that. But... <laughs> <laughs> Um, so how does one go about assessing their own archetype, whether you're a head, heart, or action person? What, what do you, I'm, I'm confused by your question. Maybe it was too clear and I missed it. So how do I, so you describe these three archetypes. You can be a heady huh? person, a hearty person, or an action oriented person. How do I figure out which one of those is oh. me? Got you. Okay. Sorry for misunderstanding. Um, well, you can figure out what your archetype is uh, a couple ways. Uh, number one, you could buy my book. Uh, number two, for free, you can go to goodenoughnow.com slash survey and take a silly baker's dozen 
answered questions and it'll kind of like alert you as to what you might be leaning towards. But the, the reality is, is that all three of them are there all the time. Most of the time we use two of the variables, not just one to respond because we feel like we have our bases covered and then we don't pay attention to the third one at all. But the third one is what fuels all of our excuses and the one that when it's aligned, everything is magic, right? So if I wanted to have a really successful conversation with my kid or a neighbor or a client that I'm pitching or someone I supervise or someone who supervises me, the key is for me to be showing up in a way that all three variables are congruent with one another. And if I can do something that helps the other person feel that way as well, we're going to be more successful. So right. um, I can give an example around supervision if you're interested. Yeah, let's do it. Great. So we're going to use the names Todd and David. So Todd is the boss and he hired David for a very specialized job and really had a hard time finding someone who could do this very specialized job. David moves from across the country to do this very specialized job. He's there. Great. Pretty much David could do anything. He's not going to lose his job because no one wants to go through that hiring process again. So Todd has his first meeting with David and Todd's intention is for David to kind of meet everybody, have some like, you know, something good or positive to share with everybody so that he kind of like instantly becomes part of the team. So Todd is a head action person and kind of says like, hey, or, you know, David, why don't you go meet everybody? And when you're meeting everybody, why don't you assess their equipment and see if they need anything and then, you know, buy them the best replacement of whatever it is you think they need. So Todd really thinks that he's setting David up for like massive success. Well, the problem with this situation is that David doesn't know who everybody is. Um, Todd, who I said earlier was head action is actually heart action. I missed this because Todd missed the details. He didn't share with David like, uh, you know, a chart, an organizational chart, headshots, names, emails, positions. He didn't provide any of that stuff to David, nor did he provide a timeline or a budget or what do you mean by equipment? What do you mean by best? So David is completely, as a head heart person, is completely paralyzed, has no idea what to do is convinced he's being set up for failure, moved all the way across the country and can't even do the first thing his boss asked him to do. What do you mean? Talk to everybody, buy him new stuff. Like I just got here. What do you, do you mean online? You, like, what are you talking about? So I get called in to kind of mediate the conversation because Todd's really nervous because he thinks David's going to quit because David's not even doing his work. Well, this is a a classic example of what often gets called miscommunication, when in reality, it's just a missed connection, which I see as two different things. So I have the conversation with David. He tells me everything. So then I have a conversation with Todd. He tells me everything. So I was like, okay, Todd, you're the boss. So you have like the power here. What if you reframe your directions and you tell David, hey, in the next week by like Friday, I'd like for you to meet these 10 people 
and then give them headshots, email, phone numbers. Everybody works remotely. They're not even in an office. How is David supposed to meet everybody? Tell them who these people are. Tell them what their jobs are. Tell David a certain budget amount. And like, do you meet, like, let's just narrow it down to like computer monitors. Who is a bad computer monitor? Who needs a new one? Is there any other kind of equipment you need? See if that works. But having that limited focus, a little bit more structure, a deadline, and some details, David's actually like grateful to receive these directions because now he knows what to do. Got it. Makes sense? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that I was going to ask you for an example. I think that sort of covers it. So you, what I think is going to resonate with this audience is something that, that, that must come up for them on a reasonably frequently, a frequent basis. And that is, um, you mentioned previously when we chatted that this has implications for hiring committees. Describe why that matters. Well, this actually is going to get me out of a job, but I will tell you the answer. When big organizations call me because they're worried about their diversity and inclusion plan and the workplace culture shifting to be more inclusive, they're willing to spend a lot of money for me just to fix it, but they want it fixed really fast, which is hard to shift culture really fast. So what I first do is say, do you have any search committees currently going on? Yeah, yeah, almost everybody usually does. So I'm like, great. This is what I want you to do. I want to meet everybody who's on the search committee. I want to talk to everybody who could be on the search committee. And I want you to give me permission to change who's on the search committee if I need to. But I promise it will result in a better hire that lasts longer. And if that person with my search committee is still employed a year later, we're good. If they leave within a year, I'll give you all of your money back. And they're usually like... Wow, that's that's kind of a big offer. So then nine times out of 10, I go, a search committee is one head action person who has voluntold all of their closest friends to also be on the search committee. So then it ends up being a group of people who have been voluntold to be on the search committee and they're all head action people. They need a timeline, they need some questions, they need some resumes to review, boom, 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 let's do this, done. That's a head action person's approach to a search committee. So what I end up doing is firing everybody on the search committee. Most of the people who are voluntold are grateful for this. They didn't know how to say no to their friend. So I fire everybody, I interview everybody in the office, and I pick the strongest head action, strongest heart action, and strongest head heart person. Generally, these three people hate each other. So then the boss tries to do some intervention like, no, no, you don't understand. This is going to go really bad. And I'm like, in a year, I will give you all of your money back if I'm wrong. So I get these three people together. I explain the model. I get them to get to a place where they understand what their weaknesses are. They find out why they have been so frustrating to the other two people. Then we get them to a place where they understand what their strengths are, which magically balance out with everybody else's weaknesses. Then collectively, they decide how are they going to run the search committee? How are they going to review the resumes? What is their timeline? And every single time I have done this, 
it has gone faster than if the original committee was still in place. They've picked someone that all three people legitimately believe is a good hire. And then when the person comes in into the position, they have three people who supported them who are in different camps in the office because they're from different places in the model. So they instantly feel more included, more welcomed, and their strengths are highlighted across the office. And I have yet to find somebody who's left within a year. Yeah, that's nice. I mean, there's so many things in there. First of all, you know, you you make the search committee, let's just say more diverse. So different skill sets and different weaknesses. And maybe they aren't the three people who want to work together, but that's not the point of the search committee. It's three people to hire someone. And then they, someone that they can all agree on, um, really set up for success because for whatever way, in whatever way they might, the new hire might appear to the rest of the team to be weak, as you say, there's somebody on the committee who's going to back them up and say, who's looked at the big picture and say, this is why this is the right person. And rather than have it um, committee versus everyone else on why that new, new hire is failing. Um, and then, yeah. And then set up for success themselves because they feel included and, um, and they feel like they have a broad base of support across the team when they get there. Right. So. And no, notice, typically when we, I'm using air quotes that do not translate, but here are my air quotes, click, click. Notice that when we say we pulled together a diverse committee, some corporations or, or organizations or associations or teams, that table looks very different from each other. And if they are in the same place on the model, that's not going to shift how the new person feels like they belong because they're only going to belong to one third of the model. And this is really key. Like when we talk about diversity and inclusion, I always use the example of Annie Potts in the original Ghostbusters. Let's all take a moment for how the Oscars overlooked a fantastic movie, the original (laughs) Ghostbusters movie. But you may remember... Ghostbusters set up shop. Annie Potts is the administrative assistant. She is also Zool. Spoiler alert. And when they get their first client, she slams down a button, sets off the alarm in the firehouse and says, we've got one. And that is how 99% of the diversity strategic plans I work with within organizations, that is how they treat diversity. And that is how you lose diversity. That is how you lose talent that you have spent time to hire. And it is also how you don't recruit good talent because they hear that you're not going to last long. The general office culture is that, yeah, 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 you look different. You're not going to last long. And it just repeats itself over and over and over again. Now, I have a mortgage. So, like, we're talking about my job security here. But this is also about what's right. And if you can take three different people from very different strengths and weaknesses, regardless of identities, put them into a room and they agree on someone, then the person who comes in is automatically going to have three very different friends. And that's how you recruit and retain top talent. 
and a strong, yeah, I just like the strength of that agreement behind them. If you can get those three people to agree. So I, naturally, I want to ask, how, how difficult is it for them to find someone? Does it, does it make it harder for them to find someone they agree on, even though the result in the outcome sounds like it's going to be much better? But what's the pain of the, the actual doing look like? I have to ask. Oh, the three people respecting and talking to each other because habitually they hate each other. That's the hard part. But that's part of what you do for them is like to, to get them to see like, here's why you three are the three. We're right. I choose the three of them. you and all three and of them. And them Go ahead. They have a, a specific role too, right? Instead of being voluntold, as you say, there's not a driver who's leading the committee and two um, followers who are going to just go along because they want to get it over with. Right. Or they're, you know, they're their friends. I mean, we talk about like bullying and stuff and bullying doesn't always have to be violent. Right. So if you're the one who has the social capital in the office, you whip up a committee really quickly. Most of your committee members don't necessarily feel like they can say no. Like, how is that not bullying? Now you're serving on a committee. Yeah. Yeah. So the (laughs) the first thing I do is sit down with these three people and I explain I explained the system of my model and nine times out of 10, all three of them have no interest in being there. Their arms are crossed and they're like, what are you doing? You don't understand how horrible these other two people are. So then eventually my job is to be charming and funny enough to make them realize that all three, all four of us, me included, are horrible people. We annoy so many people. Ugh, it's, it's amazing we're allowed out of the house. And we do good things, right? Gandhi did good things, was horrible to work with. Martin Luther King did great things, was horrible to work with. Mother Teresa did great things, was horrible to work with. All right. So then I point them out. You're Gandhi, you're Mother Teresa, and you are Martin Luther King. All of you are annoying. And future holds, two of you are going to be assassinated, and all of you did great things, right? It makes a big joke. And then we start talking about what are the great things you actually do. And in a very short period of time, they get to a place where they self-disclose what they do that's annoying. And it heals a lot because the other two people actually believe that the one person speaking doesn't know what they do is annoying. So they disclose that. Boom, boom, boom. Now can we get to our strengths? So then the same stack of resumes that the bad committee had, now let's look at these. How are you going to look at this? What are you going to decide? What are you going to do? And I mean, hiring is a really, excuse me, hiring is a really subjective process that we pretend is objective. So what, what ends up happening is we go through this very objective process and then we hire the person that we like. Well, in this case, you're going to go through an objective process and you're going to hire the person that three people who are radically different from each other like. Yeah. We could go on and on about that, but I, you know, I don't want to take away all your work from you. I mean, that's, um, it's in a book. I mean, it's kind of out there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, I really like that. I mean, hiring is a, is a painful thing and sometimes you get lucky and sometimes the committee just doesn't go the way you want. And um, 
Yes. And, and we've had a couple other people on here. You know, we've had other discussions on this podcast about evaluating people. And I think those are still valuable in mm-hmm. the context of what you're saying, because um, it was really about ways to evaluate people and who you're looking for to fill a position and what, what you need from them. Mm-hmm. This is a great way. This is the first time I think we've talked about how does a committee work together yeah. to agree on that person. Well, and it's funny that you mentioned the word luck is that, so I mean, nothing against the Irish, but like you're going to, as, as someone who's in charge, whatever that means, organization, association, Boy Scout club, whatever, if you're in charge, you're going to leave an important, exp- very expensive decision up to, well, I mean, we tried and this is the stack of resumes we got and like, hope it works out. Like, really? You're going to do that? And it's important. And I talk about this in the book too, that if you're releasing a product, so like, let's say the iPhone, for example. So if the first iPhone had no bugs, did everything perfectly, and the user's interests or changes or ideas had no impact, there would only be one version of an iPhone and it already came out. iPhone 1, done. But the reality is, is that iPhone 1 was decent enough to be released knowing there's going to be a 2.0. So when we talk about luck in the workplace, if you're intentionally putting something out or you're intentionally bringing something in, and you know that 2.0 could be coming, that's the training and evaluation and assessment and professional development of the talent that you've brought in. And it's recognizing that your products or what you're putting out are solving today's problems and you're leaving room for what tomorrow's problems will be. Yeah. That's smart. That's not luck. Yeah, no, I like that. I mean, I, that's a great way to think about it. And, and yeah, thinking about professional development, I, I, what struck me there is it goes back to the conversation I had with Bob Penny about, um, and maybe this is relevant or not, you can tell me. Uh, you wanted to hire someone, I have to think about this, but you don't want the person that is most qualified in a job. You want someone who is... Um, I don't want to say minimally qualified, but meets certain requirements. But you don't necessarily want to hire someone who's super qualified because they're going to get bored. I mean, everybody knows you don't want to hire anybody who's overqualified for a job. But if a person has no room to grow in their in their role, you've kind of put them on a dead end. And um, it was, but when you lay it out in the matrix he described, it was very clear. Like, okay, we need someone who can do this, but also has you know some potential you know that's going to enjoy this job mm-hmm. um and uh, it's funny that you used that as an example so i applied for a job recently in my hometown that i looked at as kind of a long-term consulting contract and they're looking at as like a well-paid part-time job okay great right um and like every other job I've applied for in my hometown, um, I didn't get the job. And the reason why I didn't get the job, they said, is I'm overqualified. They didn't know someone with my qualifications and experience even lived here in town. And they're really worried I'm going to leave. And what's hysterical about that is 
I own a home here. Like I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> like the whole right. point is that I'm looking. Wouldn't it be nice for me to be able to do something in my local community and like give back with the skill sets that I have? But yeah. so I, I want to push back just a little bit in that there is a possibility that outside of what's on a resume is the reason why someone who's that qualified is applying for the job. Right. Yeah. Don't. And I told them in the last job, I was like, don't underestimate how much worth it is that I get to sleep in my own bed. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or have a short commute. Right. Or any number of other things that um, many people would happily trade for. Right. Make friends. I travel mm -hmm. 300 days a year. Wouldn't it be fantastic if one, that number was lower. And then when I'm in the grocery store, I knew someone's name. <laughs> Yeah. Like, I'll take a pay cut for that. Indeed. I've lived. Yeah. So anyway, feel free to call them and complain. I did not get hired. All right. Well, Jessica Bennett, this has been a great conversation. Really, I really enjoyed it. Um, I think that that whole thing around the hiring committee is, is going to be hugely valuable to people. I, of course, I'm going to put a link to goodenoughnow.com slash survey mm -hmm. on uh on the show notes so people can check that out. And I also want to thank you. Um, I didn't mention this at the top, but when you contacted me, you told me your goal was to be on a podcast every week. Yep. Yeah. And so I just want to thank you sort of for supporting the podcasting community in general. I mean, that's, it, and I just love that it's thinking out of the box. Like I don't need my own podcast. I just go out and meet a bunch of people. You're doing the exact opposite of what I'm doing. Like I have a <laughs> podcast so I can meet a lot of people, but we depend on people like you who want to talk. And it's fun, you know, talk to somebody who's into this medium, but doesn't necessarily have their own. Right. I'm so, I, I'm so technophobic that the idea of me doing my own podcast and most people, I mean, like I listen to podcasts all the time and it wasn't until I came up with this goal that like just the production of each show, scheduling the hosts or the guests and some guests I'm sure are just terrible. Um, some hosts have been terrible. Um, it's hard. This is hard work. And it's funny because the output is like, you know, what I'm doing on a treadmill. Like it doesn't seem like it's hard work. And so when I kind of made that kind of connection in my head, I was like, no, I, I, I depend on podcasts. How can I best support the medium? So that's where the goal came from. But the other place that it came from was my mastermind group suggested that I start doing stand-up comedy again. And I burst into tears and they were like, oh my gosh, what's going on? But as a woman doing stand-up comedy in my early 20s in New York City, I'm now 15 years sober. And the idea of being a woman in my mid-40s sober trying to do stand-up comedy again, I was like, uh, no. Mm-mm. Not, that's not available. But being a guest on a podcast has been short phrases of, you know, I have to be funny and charming inside your structure. You're kind of like my audience is a stand-up, right? But it's also kind of improv. I don't know what you're going to ask me. I don't know where we're going to go. Um, so it's actually been really helpful for me as well. Who knew? Yeah. Our listeners probably don't know that you are the second former stand-up comic who's been on this podcast in the last couple of months. Oh, wow. Who's the other one? Uh, Sarah Osteen. Ah, nice. From Seattle, she um, she's a leadership development 
coach and um she gave a nice episode here but she told me that she used to be a stand-up comic as well and so and then uh my wife has a good friend who's just, who's currently a stand-up comic and uh it's a hard it's a hard job i think it is it is yeah well cool well thank you very much for having me if there's anything else i can do to support the show let me know and then if anybody's interested you can also go to goodenoughnow.com slash freebies f-r-e-e-b-i-e-s and download activities and stuff like that too if it, if it can be helpful i'm happy to help all right i'll put that link in the show notes as well jessica pettit thank you very much yay